This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We went through some of the headlines when it comes to returning to work. Paul Wells Fargo pushing its return yep. to office plan to October. Florida's hospitals here in the U.S. have been strained by a deluge of COVID patients. Uh, closer to home here in New York City, cases are spiking as well. Let's get a, an international perspective, a perspective from around the world. Joining us now is uh, Dr. Chizaba Wanadi, an associate scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, also the Nigeria country director at the Johns Hopkins International Vaccine Access Center. Dr. Wanadi joins us from Nigeria. Thanks so much for, for joining us. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, give us, we, we do focus, we have been focusing a lot on what's been happening here in the United States. Um, give us an update from Nigeria, because according to the Bloomberg Vaccine Tracker, only 1% of the population has been inoculated. That's right. Only 1% of um, Nigerians have received the vaccine, and that 1% is courtesy of the COVAX facility. Um, we received 3.9 million doses way back in, in February, and the government rolled out the vaccination program quite um, effectively and used up all the vaccines. And I have to say that one of the concerns with um, the vaccines is the risk of expiration. And so the government was able to roll it out without any single vaccine expiring. Um, and, and that really speaks to the need and the demand for the vaccine. There is a latent demand for the vaccine, despite the fact that we have heard about vaccine hesitancy. There are some people who are hesitant for sure, but there are still quite a number of people who want these vaccines. Um, there is now a new um, batch of vaccine that we just received um, August 1st, 4 million doses from the U.S. government, actually, through the COVAX facility. And so plans are underway right now to um, get those vaccines rolled out and people vaccinated. But as you can see, 4 million doses will only bring us up to 2% per, uh, vaccinated. So there's still quite a lot of unmet need for vaccination, for COVID vaccination in Nigeria and indeed in, in all of Africa and many lower middle income countries. So, Dr. Monandi, that's kind of where I wanted to go. What's what's the plan or what's the expectation in Nigeria and across Africa for maybe the intermediate term over the next six months in terms of percentage vaccinated? How high do you think you can get that number and over what time frame? It's very hard to say because, as you know, most of the global vaccine supplies have been locked up by, you know, richer countries who got in there first and, you know, paid the manufacturing and pharmaceutical companies to produce vaccines for them and secure those vaccine doses. Um, but now we're seeing more and more of the rich countries um, donating some of their doses to the COVAX facility. We know that the COVAX facility earmarked 20% uh, of um, the population of the countries that they would provide um, vaccines to cover those 20%. And that will be over a period of, um, you know, from, from February, that was going to be over a period of one year, one and a half years. So in the next six months, 
Um, we are hoping that we should be able to get enough um, vaccines from both the COVAX facility as well as the African Union, um, who is making arrangements also to provide some vaccines um, to, to try and get to that 20%. But we're not sure for if we're going to get the 20% because right now the global vaccine supply is in very, very short um, supply. And um, the prospects for producing enough to, to feed the world or to, to, to satisfy the world need is actually quite uh, bleak. You know, one right thing. Now. Well, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and look, in, in recent months, is the fact that in the United States, we are so wealthy when it comes to vaccines. And there are so many Americans right now who are sick because they did not take a vaccine. And around the world, there are so many people who would get in line to get the vaccine that is just sitting there at the drugstore waiting for an American to come and get it. From, a, from the perspective of a public health expert, a physician, and somebody who's living in a country where only 1% is vaccinated, what goes through your head when you see that? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I find that, um, I mean, that's, that's unfortunate, really, because... Um, there are many people elsewhere who would line up, like you say, for these vaccines. But but that is that is the reality in 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 the US and I think it will also be the reality in lower and middle income countries when we do have enough vaccines. There will in every population there will be some people who are hesitant, right? And so US has reached that stage where you have you have satisfied those who will take the vaccine immediately, and you are now in the, in the phase where you need to um, you need to encourage those who are still on the fence about the vaccine. You encourage them to get the vaccine, but there there are right. some people who will not get the vaccine, and that's that's the truth. All so, right, doctor. Um, I think the U.S. vaccine mandates. That's a hot topic here in the United States and I guess other uh, um, developed markets that have relatively high vaccination rates. Do you think that's something that should be enforced either at the you know the government level or maybe just at a private level, i.e. if you want to come into my restaurant, you got to prove that you've been vaccinated? Personally, I, I think so. Um, with the way the COVID transmission is happening and the risk of, of um, viral variants that you know, could cost more harm than good. Um, I think that clearly we, if we have more vaccination, it's going to slow the spread of, of, the, of the virus and the variants and reduce the odds that even more dangerous variants will emerge. And that's something we really need to worry about. Um, right now, I think many employers want to see that their employee um, show their vaccination card. So at Hopkins, for example, um, there is no mandate for, uh, per se, but um, if you are not vaccinated, you have to be tested often. And so, you know, it's still an inconvenience for you to get tested maybe every other day or wear a mask um, consistently. So I, I think that there definitely has to be something to be done is either there's a vaccine mandate in place or there is stricter and more regular testing because we we don't want um, an individual's freedom to infringe on the health of the, the public or, or the community. So that sense of responsibility must be upheld. What is the best way to instill that sense of responsibility in someone who says, well, a 
forcing me to get a vaccine is a threat to my individual liberty? The best way, I think, is is to put the responsibility back on them, right, to not put the public at risk. So I think what they're doing in, in, uh, in France is if you're not vaccinated, then you stay home. Those who are vaccinated now have the liberty to go out uh, because we're not going to close the economy down for those who refuse to get vaccinated and continue to be a threat to the public health. So um, while we don't want to infringe on individual liberties and freedoms, um, we would have to put the onus back on the individual who refuses to get vaccinated to, you know, to, to keep from spreading the disease to other people. So you would, you, if you're not vaccinated, then you would have to wear masks, you would have to test frequently, and you would have to prove that you're not a risk to the public. So I think it's, it's a matter of putting a carrot and a stick. And I think the stick should be uh, wielded where people you know, refuse to get vaccinated if there is no medical reason for them not to get vaccinated. So, Dr. Winodi, the Delta variant is obviously the dominant variant on a global scale. Do we know anything about how long it will remain in driving these surges? Is it just a factor of when something else comes along or is there a scenario where this dies out as a variant? How, do, how should we think about it? The way to think about it is that um, the more the virus is transmitted, the more the risk of variants emerging. So the Delta variant right now, obviously, you know, is, is the result of continued transmission. The way we are going to get rid of the Delta variant is for you know, more people to get vaccinated and for us to curb transmission by maintaining the same, um, you know, public health measures, social distancing, wearing masks, avoiding crowds and things like that. So if we look at the if we look at the epidemic curve of, let's say, the, the alpha, we, we can't really tell with the alpha because alpha is less transmissible than the Delta variant. So we're actually looking at a longer term um, scenario where if we don't put enough measures in place. The Delta variant might actually stay longer than we saw the Alpha variant being uh, like a major driver of, of, of the um, epidemic. So I would say that um, for now, it's really, really important for us to get the vaccination rates up around right. the world because another variant might emerge from a part of the world yeah. where vaccines are not available. This is exactly what we were warned about months ago, and we're seeing it happen right now. Dr. Chisibo Wanadi, associate scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, also Nigeria country director at the Johns Hopkins International Vaccine Center. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, it is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. While the U.S. economy is in the midst of a historic comeback, it's happening, though, with the lowest rate of labor force participation in more than four decades and a record number of unfilled jobs. It leaves economists, policymakers, and investors wondering, where have all the workers gone? Those are the words from Olivia Rockman. She's U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. She's joining us on the phone from San Diego. Also, Joel Weber's joining us. He's editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the access San line Diego. from Massachusetts. Yeah, San Diego. Nice. That's a pretty nice place to be right now, Olivia. I can <laughs> speak like that as a Californian. Uh, Joel, where have all the workers gone? It has been a question that companies uh, um, and economists have just been obsessing about um, since 
the economy started to, to pick up steam and there's health wanted signs. The biggest thing I've been seeing are like signing bonuses and like this isn't like nothing. We're talking like thousands of dollars and on up and it's all an attempt to incentivize workers to come out of the closet because they they have just literally, it seems like they've gone missing. But it turns out that um, it's not a, quite as big of a mystery um, as it might seem and that Olivia sort of helped uh, do some sleuthing and, and figure out um, what was at the bottom of it. And and Olivia, I'll turn it over to you, but part of this is, is frankly just because of boomers, right? That's right. So one of the big factors is that boomers retired at double the rate that they did in 2019 last year. And so we have this highly productive group of workers that now is basically out for, for good. And then at the same time, we're seeing the birth rate decline and we're not seeing young people enter the workforce at as fast of a rate as those generations before them did. Well, you know, Olivia, Al from Jersey called me and said, get back to work. So here I am back, back to work. But one of the issues that I think some people may have is maybe their skills just kind of lapse here and, and they might not be as employable as maybe they were when they were in their workforce. And I'm thinking maybe about some some of the older demos. Um, what are you finding as it relates to ages? So it's, of course, historical that employers discriminate against people who are older when it comes to hiring because they know they won't get as many years out of that worker. And at the same time, while skills may lapse when you spend more time out of the workforce, it also means that if you've had these long resume gaps when you're applying for a job, employers often you know, vet those resumes out or aren't as quick to hire. And so it makes it harder for people to jump back into the workforce the longer they've been away. So what do economists and analysts who you speak to say needs to happen when it comes to policymaking decisions to encourage uh, employees to get back to work? There are a number of factors here. So one of them that we've kind of found over the last six months or so is, is a childcare problem. And so um, parents, particularly women, left their labor force at high rates and some see the cost of childcare and they say, you know what, why go back at a low wage when I can just save on that cost? And so some of what Biden has proposed in this trillions of dollar package is um, childcare accessibility. So that's one thing. Another thing is the opioid crisis that's caused a lot of people to leave the labor force. And again, that takes a crackdown on, you know, rehabilitation and, help for these individuals. So there's so many categories and each one sort of has its own policy structure around it. I, I want to talk more about the opioids um, uh, because it, when you think about the scale of an epidemic like it was and predated um, uh, this pandemic, obviously, um, it, it's easy to maybe think like it, it wouldn't have had as big of a dent as, as it seems to be ha be having. So, like, how are economists looking at at the implications from from opioids? How how's, how big is that in terms of the 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 missing element in this labor force? So, drug overdose deaths in particular rose by thirty percent last year. Um, that's a huge increase from the years prior. In fact, op opioid deaths had been kind of plateauing and have now increased again. And the problem there is that in areas where addiction rates are higher, we see lower rates of labor force participation. 
And so as this spreads, it sort of worsens the issue. Um, Like we've seen in D.C., for example, it's been a huge problem for many of the employers there. And so when you think about um, what can be done, I mean, like, how do you how do you get on the other side of of this from a policy perspective? So, of course, as I mentioned, Biden is proposing this massive infrastructure plan, which has many different components that are aiming to help get people back into the labor force. But as we say in our story, you know, labor force participation is at a 40 year low right now. Um, it That's amazing a to bit me, from, right? Like, it's, yeah. we're back to the 70s. Exactly. And, and the 70s was a time in which we had, a, you know, historic recession, inflation was high, and there were cultural differences then as well. Um, and so while we did sort of climb out of the pandemic low, we haven't seen a lot of progress in labor force participation since August of last year. And so it's going to take a lot for, for you know, policymakers both on the Fed side and on the White House side to come up with solutions to get people to, to start working again. The 70s were quite good for me, I'll just point out. All right, let's talk <laughs> automation here, Olivia. When I go to the CVS and get my four or five items, I just scan it myself and, and skedaddle. I mean, so that's got to be an issue. What's really interesting here is in prior recessions, we always saw automation coming in kind of to replace manufacturing jobs, factory jobs. But because of the health crisis, we've seen automation now replacing service workers as well, whether that's in food service or, as you mentioned, at a CVS or a grocery store. And so we've sort of seen what happened in prior recessions now accelerate on the automation front. And in the U.S., we really don't invest that much in reskilling, which would help people who've lost their jobs to robots kind of get back into the workforce. And so that's that's really where we're lacking in that area. Hey, Olivia, just in the last 30 seconds that we have with you, the jobs report tomorrow, it's expected to show that the U.S. added just about 875,000 jobs in July. What's the number that you're going to be paying attention to, though? Well, this story is all about labor force participation, and economists are estimating that labor force participation is going to barely move upward. And so, you know, that's going to continue to point to this trend that there's going to need to be more happen on the policy front, too get us back. Olivia Rockman is U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from San Diego, along with Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's joining us from Massachusetts. Olivia's story is featured in the current issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. You can read it now at the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Paul Sweeney sitting in for Carol Master today along with Tip Stenovic. Boy, media M&A is alive and well, and that whole concept of content is king is absolutely making itself known. And I always describe that term, content is king. It's widely used, but I ascribe it to Subner Redstone, the media mogul. Uh, he used to just say that all the time because he owned a lot of uh, content. Uh, but let's take a look at some of these deals with Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So, Jerry, first we had Reese Witherspoon selling her Hello Sunshine Media Group to $900 million bucks. I think this is P.E. folks. And then just today, South Park's creator signed a new $900 million deal with Viacom CBS. Is What's going on out there? It seems like an arms race. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a real land grab right now for high-quality programming 
as uh, all the big media giants and tech companies uh, are trying to, um, you know, fill their streaming services with as many TV shows and movies as possible. So this new deal, Jerry, it runs through 2027. It covers six more cycles of, of South Park and includes 14 made for wow. streaming movies. That's the part that really stuck out to me. So this is these are for Paramount Plus because it's really confusing because you can watch South Park on HBO Max. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an example of just how um, you know splintered this whole streaming world is where you know the old episodes of a show might be on one streaming service and the new uh, reboot of a show wow. is on another. I mean, there's another example where uh, Peacock is doing a reboot of the uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air but the old episodes of Fresh Prince are on HBO Max. Uh, I think uh, Viacom CBS, uh, their deal with the South Park creators runs longer than their licensing deal with HBO Max. And I think the strategy there is eventually those shows, uh, those old episodes of South Park end up on Paramount Plus, along with all the new uh, shows and movies that the creators are making. Jerry, I'm getting to the point of being, and I'm a media analyst, I've covered this stuff for 35 years, of getting completely overwhelmed by the choices out there. But I can report that after, again, 35 years, I finally cut the cord for no other reason than we sold our house. So, you know, you um, but it's interesting here. What do you think is next? I mean, are we going to see more and more of these A-list people, you know, kind of go out there and try to form production companies and build up some content and sell out? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really a, an, an incredible time if you are, um, you know, independent studio. I mean, LeBron James's uh, production studio is also exploring right. a sale. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, uh, you know, these streaming services, they just need more and more programming. And, and certainly their in-house studios are, are making a lot of it. But if you're an independent uh, producer, uh, I mean, you have your your phone is probably ringing off the hook right now with streaming services that are are looking to do deals with you. Well, to that, and Jerry, you have a new story out in Bloomberg Businessweek, the current issue. It's all about none other than The Daily Show's John Stewart. He's going to Apple TV. This is cool. Yeah, this is cool. And, and this is interesting because I remember years ago, this was uh, what, 2015, Jerry, where uh, HBO signed a deal with Jon Stewart after he was on Comedy Central, uh, and nothing ever came of that. Yeah, that's right. He, um, you know, he had an idea, a very ambitious idea, to do uh, some sort of animated show related to current events, and it uh, and it just died in production. Um, but yeah, he has a new show uh, that's coming out on Apple TV TV Plus next month. Um, it's going to be a little bit different format than The Daily Show. He's going to spend an hour really doing a deep dive on a certain a specific topic. Um, he hasn't said what the topics are going to be yet, but it, it sounds similar to what John Oliver does, uh, a former colleague of, of Stewart's uh, from The Daily Show. John Oliver has a show on HBO called Last Week Tonight, where he um, you know, spends much of the program just um, doing a really in-depth uh, piece on, on a specific topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, Apple TV Plus has, has sort of flown under the radar in the, the whole discussion about the streaming wars. Um, certainly Apple has very deep pockets, but um, its streaming service, the library is, is a lot thinner than, um, you know, Netflix or HBO Max. Uh, but they, they certainly, um, you know, they have a hit show right now, Ted Lasso. Everybody seems to be talking about Ted Lasso. Um, you know, in this John Stewart show, I know they're hoping that that's going to be uh, generating a lot of buzz. And it's an important moment for Apple, Apple TV Plus because a lot of the people who signed up uh, got one year free trials and those were extended and extended again. And now they're starting to wear off. 
So, uh, you know, Apple TV Plus really needs some compelling content to keep people uh, around once their free trial ends. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's not for lack of resources, right, Jerry? I mean, you think about the balance sheet of Apple. If they, if they really, really wanted to get in here, there's no stopping them. Do we have any idea of the terms of this John Stewart deal? Uh, you know, I mean, he's going to be producing other uh, programming for Apple as well, I think. Um, you know, but uh, it, it's definitely Apple is, as you said, it, they've got very deep pockets. I think everyone in Hollywood has been waiting for them to start taking some big swings. Uh, you know, they have Oprah Winfrey. Uh, they have a lot of uh, really big name talent, um, you know, that, that are making shows and movies uh, for them. And, and I think it's, um, you know, the Jon Stewart show will be a really interesting example also because, um, you know, that the whole late night um, comedian talk shows haven't always translated uh, well on streaming services. Huh. We haven't seen anything that's really broken through in the same way that, you know, uh, the broadcast networks with the Tonight Show, um, you know, that, that, that they have. So it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, how Jon Stewart's show does. Hey, Jerry, can't let you uh, leave without talking about Viacom CBS, because I know you were up early covering those earnings today. Shares of Viacom uh, CBS higher by more than 7% right now. Um, what's the headline there? Well, certainly streaming. Uh, you know, they're starting to see some traction with, uh, with Paramount+. Plus. They're starting to expand internationally. They announced a big deal where they're going to be launching Paramount Plus um, on Sky's European networks. That's a deal. Uh, Sky is owned by Comcast. Uh, there was a lot of chatter about maybe Comcast and Viacom CBS could do some sort of M&A. But uh, at least for now, it, it looks like they're just going to be partnering on um, launching streaming services in Europe. Um, right. Also, the ad, ad market is bouncing back. Last year, advertisers uh, yep. really uh, pulled back at the height of the pandemic, and now they're starting to spend again. And every media company now is um, yep. you know, saying that the, the market's bouncing back. Amazing. Good stuff. Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from New York. Lots of M&A, some acquisitions, looking for content in the media world. Taking a look right now at the real-time price of Robinhood, ticker H-O-O-D. Down 22% today. That follows three days of gains. Still, though, trading at $54 a share, significantly higher than the IPO price of just a week ago. The reason for this decline today, uh, investors filing to sell stock, venture capitalists who are cashing in billions of dollars after Robinhood's increase in share price in recent days. Annie Massa is investing reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from New York City. Uh, Annie, uh, it's the, the, the sell-off has accelerated since we last spoke on Quick Take a few hours ago. Uh, is this just a result of the volatility that we've seen in, in Robinhood in, in, the, in the last six days? It's a real reversal from what we were seeing earlier this week. As you mentioned, we had a three-day stretch earlier this week when Robinhood's price doubled. And that in itself was a turnaround from IPO day when it sold off. So you've seen these big big swings in Robinhood uh, over the course of the past week, and it's only been a public company for a single week. Yeah, Annie, what jumped out at me was the lockup or lack thereof on any of my equity deals. You'd have to have a six-month uh, lockup here, but these guys didn't. Why not? So this, this is a bit different. Some of the reason that we've seen this sell-off today and one of the surprises that came out this morning was you're seeing some of the big venture capital backers of Robinhood um, getting the opportunity to uh, sell shares uh, to the tune of 98 million 
shares. Now, that's not all happening at once, but they do have the ability to do that. And um, as you mentioned, the, in a typical IPO process, those lockups are in place to kind of stabilize the price of the stock once it's public. And Robinhood had a couple other factors in play here. They had an unusually large allocation to retail. They have these provisions for their venture backers who, as you remember, kind of bailed them out earlier in the year during the GameStop and AMC volatility. Um, They raised an emergency more than $3 billion, um, I mean, nearly overnight from their VC backers. So that um, those dynamics are a bit more unique to Robinhood. Annie, uh, even though Robinhood stock is down 22% right now over the last three days, it's higher by more than 40%. Do we know why the stock moved higher so quickly? Was this is this a meme stock now, basically? <laughs> That's what it seems like. It does. It's, it's, it's like nothing fundamental has changed, right? Right. It does seem it does seem to have some of that meme some of those meme stock characteristics. Just seeing those crazy swings with no uh, real fundamental change that we can identify, um, and and the big retail participation. Something that's interesting about these dynamics with Robinhood right now is there wasn't as much retail um, activity on the first day of trading, but it picked up pretty considerably in the past couple of days, even becoming the fourth most traded stock on on retail trading platforms yesterday. So, I mean, the the retail action has definitely arrived. It just arrived a a few days after the IPO. Yeah, I'm looking at the volume here. Over 64 million shares have traded uh, so far today. Uh, That feels uh, like retail to me. Annie, has a company commented at all about their stock price, you know, movement over the last several days? They haven't commented on it. They've only pointed to statements that executives have made in the past about how they're keeping uh, their eye on the long term here. Still, you have to imagine that at Robinhood headquarters uh, or or working from home, they're keeping an eye on this share price because yesterday the stock was halted multiple times for volatility. So that's not the type of thing you can entirely ignore. Yeah, that's just in the fir- that was just in the first, you know, few, like the first eleven minutes of trading, I believe. Uh, it was it was a wild ride. Um, Annie, what what's the next catalyst that we should be looking for for Robinhood? I mean, since it's a meme stock, I hesitate to even ask the question because there's no sort of rhyme or reason as to why it moves. But given that we got this uh, filing earlier today that sent the stock price plummeting, what are you on the lookout for? One important thing that we haven't touched on yet is that options on Robinhood began trading yesterday, mm-hmm. so those. Uh, lag a couple of days behind the day that the stocks started trading. So that may have amplified some of the volatility that we saw. And, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of options were trading hands yesterday. So that's added to the action. But um, one other thing to look out for in the future is the resolution of some of the regulatory um, inquiries that they've revealed, even in the couple of days leading up to the IPO. They're still very much open investigations. So that's something to keep an eye on as well. Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from here in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, here we are. Looking at these markets uh, at or near record highs once again. You know, a lot of folks are debating whether to stay in a growth trade that's worked for such a long time, go with a rotation trade into more cyclical names. And that's kind of been a little bit of a discussion within the equity markets. Let's check in with our next guest, uh, see where they come out. Sandy Villery, portfolio manager, Villery and Company with $2 billion in assets under management, joining us on the phone in New Orleans. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of maybe where you're leaning, where you shake out in terms of this growth versus the rotation into maybe more value cyclical. Where are you guys? Yeah, I mean, thank, thanks for having me, by the way. And um, I, w- I would say that, you know, when you look at something like the 10-year Treasury and it's it's down where it is, uh, it, it starts to make us a little bit nervous. I mean, basically, that's telling you, I mean, the bond market tends to be smarter than the stock market. And it's kind of telling you that, you know, growth is going to slow. So, um, you know, we, we, we kind of think we want to take some profits and, and maybe some technology stocks that have done quite well, probably on the growth side, as, you know, they've got a nice tailwind with rates coming down. And if, if our belief is that rates can pop up, you know, perhaps by, you know, the end of the year when maybe this, you know, Delta variant gets behind us and, and maybe it, it peaks out here over the short run, um, then we want to we wanna switch into things like financials and maybe more cyclicals that could, uh, you know, be in, be in some trouble over the short run as rates are going down, but then look to reverse. So we kind of want to be a little bit contrarian as to kind of where all the, you know, the, the masses are, are headed right now. Does that picture change at all tomorrow if, if we get a huge beat with the jobs report? Yeah, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, we saw, you know, June comes in at 850,000. Uh, hopefully uh, we get near this 870,000 number for July. But the question is, is a bad number actually good news for the stock market? Um, because, uh, you know, you could you could have, um, you know, a situation where maybe we start to taper um, a little bit, you know, sooner, or maybe we start taper by the end of the year, or, or maybe we don't. So I think a bad number could could lead you towards, um, you know, the Fed being, you know, kind of staying a little bit more dovish longer uh, than, than what people are expecting. So if you want more more, uh, you know, more, more juice from the Fed, then you, you, maybe you want a little bit of a bad number. It's interesting. So, uh, Sandy, I'm looking at the uh, Russell 2000 today, up having a very good day, up about 1.7%. I know historically you guys have favored small cap uh, stocks. Is that still the case? And what sectors are kind of interesting to you guys? Yeah, no, we, we, we do favor small caps. We just think over the long run, uh, it, it certainly gives you the opportunity to have a, you know, a company bought out or it gives you, um, you know, hopefully uh, we're, we're trying to find that, that company that becomes the next, you know, Amazon or Walmart, if you will. So we like to, we definitely like to be in the more smaller cap names. And I think we are trying to take advantage of, you know, with, with things like financials that are a little bit, um, again, under some pressure with falling rates and having a more difficult time, you know, with their net interest margins, et cetera, trying to take advantage and being a little bit contrarian. And then we also want to buy, you know, some things that are a little bit um, maybe tied to the reopening of the economy that all of a sudden are under pressure, you know, because of the Delta variant and, 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 and some uncertainty. So we, we, love, uh, we love some names that are more cyclical and, uh, and tied to the reopening. We're just looking towards maybe buying them, you know, maybe in the lows in, in, in August or September. Um, I think August is maybe the third worst month 
for the market, you know, since the 50s. And I think September is the worst month. So maybe we get an opportunity to buy some things a little bit cheaper if we're patient and selling at a strength with, you know, firms like Goldman raising their price target on the S&P to 4,700 and getting getting everybody excited. I think, you know, an opportunity to sell into that and, and look to buy things maybe a little bit cheaper in some more volatile days uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, we're only five days into the into the month, not even five trading days into the month. And uh, the NASDAQ's already higher by 1.4%, the S&P higher by close to seven-tenths of 1%. So we'll have to wait and see. Sandy, what, what would be that, that thing that sends markets lower? We haven't had a 5% pullback uh, in close to a year. Yeah, no, I, I think if you saw, um, you know, the, the, all of a sudden we're going to taper maybe a little bit sooner. I, I think people do expect, you know, um, you know, the Fed to stop buying the, you know, the 120 billion of Treasury and agencies each month, and and perhaps if we, um, if if that becomes more concrete, you know, that could start, you know, by the end of this year, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the 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 stimulus party isn't over, but maybe they start to flicker the lights, you know, a little bit faster, and um, and so I, I think when the you know when the when the Fed um, you know starts to react more and, and really truly becomes um, you know a little bit more hawkish, then that could be you know something that um, they could send the market you know um, a little bit further south. Sandy, one of the names that you've written up is uh, Caesars. I'm a big fan of the gaming industry. I'm just fascinated by the economics and the financials there. Give us your call on Caesars here. It seems like it would be it would fit in with your thesis of a you know really good reopening play. Yeah, and and you know these guys have done an amazing job. I mean, sometimes you bet on the horse, and, and sometimes you bet on the jockey. And Tom Reeg has just been an unbelievable operator. He came from El Dorado Resorts and has done some great things with you know Isle of Capri and Tropicana and, and things like that. And so he actually came in and and, and bought Caesars, and he's already um, you know cutting expenses and doing these things that are um, incredible to to get his you know hopefully long term operating margins up to forty percent. And and you know still they're talking about ten dollars. A free cash flow share is is certainly in play in this this sector. It kind of trades at eleven to thirteen times, so you could be looking at one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty dollars stock. Um, you know, he is uh, very committed to you know the the online uh, gaming as well as um, you know as, as as well as sports betting. And you know, four billion dollar acquisition of William Hill, which is the third largest mm. sports book operator in the country, is all going to be run through Caesars. And then you get the you know sixty million total rewards customers is just um, you know, an amazing, an, an amazing feat. So I think, I think these guys have a lot of. Uh, I, I still think it's very early in what he's capable of doing, and he's just had such a good track record that um, you know we're excited about owning that name, especially if you get a sell-off. You know, uh, if people get worried about you know casinos closing and, and things like that, that's just going to be a great opportunity over the next you know 12 to 18 months. What about a bank like First Hawaiian? Yeah, I, I think that's a similar um, a, a similar situation where if you can get um, you know, if you can get into a, you know, maybe a more reasonable valuation with, um, you know, again with interest rates, you know, falling here and, and really hurting financials, um, these guys have a, you know, 3.8% dividend yield and looks very good when you're when you're comparing it to a, you know, 1.2% ten-year Treasury. Um, these guys never took TARP, um, you know, pretty pretty conservative, you know, back in the financial crisis, never took TARP. Um, founded in 1858, so really a, a kind of a duopoly with Bank of Hawaii, and they're also um, sort of a play on not only the military that, that's over there, but also um, the reopening um, and, and, you know, tourism coming back. And I think it's one that um, doesn't seem to me to be, um, you know, real risky at all, but, but certainly offers a lot of upside should you see rates, you know, drift higher as we get past this uh, Delta variant. 
Sandy Villery, Portfolio Manager at Villery and Company, $2 billion in assets under management, joining us this afternoon from New Orleans. Sandy, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.